Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. I remember saying to them that daddy's going to die and um, that he was going to die really soon. I was just devastated, as you can imagine. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. In 2016, I had the pleasure of working with Scott Bennett. He was my manager and quickly became a mentor and someone for me to look up to. One morning, we went into a team meeting and Scott wasn't there. We had no idea why Scott had not turned up to work and later found out he was in hospital after having had a seizure in the shower. After numerous tests, Scott was later diagnosed with brain cancer. In true Scott style, he got on and lived his life with his beautiful wife Jess and their two kids, Henry and Sadie. Scott wanted to tell his story, so we organized to record an episode of the Aftershock podcast together in September last year. Devastatingly, Scott's health took a turn and he passed away before we got the chance to record. In this episode of the Aftershock podcast, we speak to Scott's wife, Jess. Jess shares with us Scott's incredible story, his approach to his diagnosis, and how they handled the conversation with their two young kids. Thanks so much for joining us, Jess. We really, really appreciate it. Do you want to start with how did you meet Scott? Sure. Um, Well, Scott and I have been together for 20 years so we were just babies when we met we met at Safeway Sale which is where we both grew up in fact he was my boss when I first started on the checkouts and so we kind of hit it off straight away he was just such a a fun guy and um and kind of shy a little bit but I don't know he sort of grew out of that I guess towards the end but I remember sending him a little message on the change slip like um, up to him to say, can I have your number or what's your number? And he wrote back 1-800-HOT-STUFF. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, okay, this guy's cool. <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. But um, sort of introducing him to my parents, a 16-year-old going out with nearly a 20-year-old, probably didn't go down super well to begin with. Um, but I felt like there was probably more concern from his friends and his parents and my parents. Um, but my friends were just stoked um because we had someone that could drive and yeah alcohol, and buy you so. booze perfect yeah, yeah. Oh, and then they met <laughs> yeah. scott and then they're like oh that's right we've got nothing to worry about he's he's scott yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so they well they did know him because you know sales a small place but um i think i mentioned this before um that my mum actually delivered scott he she was his midwife so there's been a long connection there. <laughs> that's right. Oh, how funny. That is, that's worlds colliding yeah. down the track. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. When did you get married? In 2010. So we got married on the grand final draw. So we we organised the, <laughs> the wedding to be the weekend after the grand final. I don't think I've ever been so pissed off about a grand final getting becoming a drawer and then having to play the next week or so annoyed. But Scott was super calm because his parents actually got married on the draw grand final as well and they're still together and going strong. So really? he was like, I see this as a sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's bizarre. That's really crazy timing. 
Yeah. Well, obviously, <laughs> obviously a good omen. Um, and tell me about your kids. Uh, well, Henry, he is um, eight, almost nine. And Sadie, she is seven. And they're both complete opposites. So Sadie is more like me, but very, very creative like Scott um, and knows how to hold a room like Scott. And Henry is just the spitting image of his dad. So he looks exactly like him, behaves exactly like him, um, is a quality dad joke deliverer like his dad. So Well, Scott um, taught him well. He did. He taught him really well. <laughs> yeah. I got to meet Scott, oh, my God, what year was it? Maybe 2013 when I started at News Corp or 2014. And he um, he ended up becoming my manager and he was just such a dream to, to work with. Just heart of gold, funny, didn't take things too seriously, but knew how to, you know, had a, such a good work ethic and get down to business as well. He was he was amazing and so well liked. Um, but I do remember being in his team when um, he didn't come in one morning and we didn't know why. And we were told um, later on that Scott had had a seizure. Um, can you talk us through that day? Yeah, it was. Um, it's like the seventh of April in two thousand and sixteen, and and we had moved down to um, Clifton Springs on the Ballerine. Um, peninsula and he was traveling in and out to Melbourne all the time he would leave early you know before the kids were up and get home before after they were asleep and he was super tired but nothing out of the ordinary and then we woke up one morning and he was just a bit odd um, in terms of not really talking to me and I thought he'd cracked it at me because I'd kicked him out of bed because he was snoring (laughs) to sleep on the couch so I was like oh I can't believe you're taking this so hard like you know it's your fault you were the one snoring anyway he kind of just stared at me and I was like this is really odd he wasn't really interacting with Henry um and I said to him look you've got to you've got to get up like you're gonna miss the train and I was meant to go to Bendigo that night um for two nights um for work and then so I got everything ready and then he came into the bedroom and he was like, oh, I've missed my train. I'm like, well, I know, mate. Like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to go and have a shower. And I was like, this is really odd. I'm just going to hang around and not take the kids to daycare just yet. Um, and then he got in, yeah, and then he got into the shower and just had a really, like, random seizure. I found him at the bottom of the shower. Um, and so... I, I was just like, oh, my God, I don't don't know what's happening here. So I managed to turn it off and get him out. And poor Henry, he was there. Sades was, she was only one, so she was really little. She didn't really understand what was happening. But Henry was there for everything and saw everything. And so I called the ambulance and it felt like forever um, for them to get there. But it wasn't. It was only like 15 minutes now that I look back at it. Um, but he continuously seized like most of the time um between that so but he had no symptoms leading up to anything um did you know what to do when when he was having was it when he was having the seizure oh only from like first aid training like I just like oh okay I need to make sure he doesn't you know roll it onto his side and and um make sure he doesn't smack his head or, or bite his tongue or swallow his tongue or whatever that whatever that is but um yeah, it was really odd. And I remember Henry coming in um, 
sort of whilst the ambulance was on its way with a stethoscope. And he's like, I'm the doctor, I'm here to fix daddy. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is just so much. Um, And and then they finally arrived and they couldn't, um, they didn't have the right equipment, so then they had to call another, like the mica car. And I think we had like three ambulances there towards the end and they couldn't intubate him because he was just so locked up um and so they took him off to Geelong hospital and um and I followed later in the other ambulance but in the meantime I had to call family to come and get the kids because my family was away and um, Scott's family's in um sales so there's my brother-in-law that eventually came around and collected the kids and and made sure they were okay and then off to Geelong we went um to find out what was happening and then yeah, I just remember getting there um, and being put in to the sad room. That's what we call it. So Scott and I always called it. Whenever you get the bad news, it's like this dreary, bland room with a box of tissues on the table and you're just like, oh, here we are. We're in the sad room. This can't be good. Um, and I remember them saying that they're going to have to fly him to the Alfred to get um, assessed properly. I remember the doctor saying to me, I was just sitting there by myself, to prepare myself that I that we would never see him again. And I was just like, wow, this is just really intense right now. I'm just sitting there by myself listening to this person tell me that he's probably not going to survive. It was, it was horrific. Do they give you anything more than that as to why you might not see him, like anything that was going on with him? No, they couldn't work it out. They just said that he's just continuously seizing that there's some, they thought he actually had a sinus infection that had gone to his brain. Um, And so I was able to see him before he went because they asked me to go in to calm him down um, so that they could get him ready to get on to the helicopter. So I went in and I saw him um, and just spoke to him enough to be able to calm down, which I felt relieving because he could still understand that that was me um but then yeah that that trip to Melbourne from Geelong um took forever for me <laughs> it felt like days I remember having to call everyone so I called my mum first um and just explain what was happening and that he'd had a seizure and that he's being flown to Melbourne now we're in Adelaide so they were trying to find flights to get back and then I remember having to ring his mum and just explain that he'd had the seizure um, and that she needed to get to Melbourne as soon as she could. I think that was the hardest conversation. Um, well, it was the hardest conversation I'd had to that date. Um, just trying to keep her calm because they're all in sale. It's four hours away. Um, so that's a long, long drive for them to get there and not know what's happening. Um, but in the meantime, um, my dad had, had got to Melbourne and, um, and all of Scott's cousins and my cousins. I walked into a room full of people <laughs> at, the, um, at the ICU area and I was just like, oh, this is a bit overwhelming. But then I was sort of comforted because it was a bit of a distraction. But I found myself automatically going into comfort mode for them rather than focusing on myself or, or what was actually happening because I found that sort of easier to be honest. So you're at the hospital. Um, what happened next? Did they do a bunch of tests and how long did it take you to actually to get an answer and know what was going on? Um, they ran a whole heap of tests. So Scott was um, 
in a coma for two days um, whilst they did a whole heap of tests. He wasn't able to really breathe by himself. So he was on the machines. And I remember walking in and seeing him like that. I was just like, oh, my God, this is this is really not good. Um, and, and they still weren't 100% sure what was happening. Um, it took them probably a day, like 24 hours maybe, to work out that he had had a mass on his brain. Um, and we're a bit like, for myself, talking to the doctors, they didn't actually want me to say anything to him when they tried to wake him up because they didn't think that he could handle it um, or understand it. And so I had a good chat with his folks around that and I was like, I just have to be honest with him because I've never lied to him in my whole life. Like, why would I do that now? And um, we actually had had a um, really close friend pass away from brain cancer six weeks beforehand. And so we kind of, you know, when you say a mass in the brain, you you automatically go to, oh, holy shit, this is going to be exactly the same way. If it is cancer, we know what that looks like um, and it's not pretty and it's really quick and it's really harsh. So they finally woke him up and we had a whole heap of discussions around what it was because it didn't look like a normal brain tumour. It was kind of, the way they described it was like a GAC. So rather than like a hard, solid tumour, it was kind of like this thing spread across his brain, across his right frontal lobe and his personality area. So it was really hard to say yes it was or not was it. Um, so he spent, I think, a week in the hospital at the Alfred and then was able to come home whilst we ran more tests. So at least we were able to come home. But, um, yeah, it was it was a long time between we, when we actually got our results properly because all of the tests that they ran, like PET scans and MRIs, they still couldn't work out what exactly it was. Um, because all of the scans were showing it wasn't very active. And so their response to us was, it doesn't look bad. It looks like a slow-growing tumour that you could probably take out or not take out um, and pretty much put the decision back on us whether we wanted to take it out or not. How was Scott in that week coming home? Yeah, he was um, oddly calm. He's a very calm person anyway, but he just put his mind to fighting as much as he could. Um, and this is even before we had the proper results. So his mind immediately went to the kids and how we would have explained if he hadn't have woken up to a one and a three-year-old. Like that's really like how do you explain that? when they cannot comprehend it. And so he spent his week in hospital writing this most amazing book for them um, as to how he would want it explained now and in the future um, to his kids on why he wasn't there anymore. So he just blew me away. He, he would constantly blow me away with his calmness and rashness and thought fathers which is not surprising from him, I guess. But in that moment, I think I only saw him lost, like lose his mind once 
in terms of this whole situation. And that was the day where we were going into surgery. So, oh, knowing yeah, Scott, it was incredible. Yeah, knowing Scott, it's not surprising um, at all. It's really quite incredible, though. So, the day he was diagnosed, they got the results. Um, what was that like? Um, well, it was really, really hard because they had told us that if we choose to take it out, you know, it could be 30 years and it might grow back, it might not. We actually left skipping from the hospital thinking, yes, this is, we are one of the lucky people or lucky couples thinking that it wasn't brain cancer. And so, but still deciding to take it out because it was causing issues, um, causing him seizures. And it wasn't until after the surgery where they called us in to another sad room and said that unfortunately it was grade three anaplastic um, cytoma, which means grade three brain cancer. Um, and we were just in such shock because we didn't see it coming. Even the neurosurgeon did not see it coming. And, and then they turned around and said to us that we have five to seven years. Um, and that was really hard to stomach because he was fine. Like he was amazing. You wouldn't even know that he had it. Went back to work. He was travelling into Melbourne on days, you know, in between treatments and stuff. Like it was, it was a complete shock. So then we went through the whole doesn't feel real at all it took us a long time to come to terms with it and how did you tell your family and friends and his parents um I don't know whether we actually said that he had five to seven years to all of our family um some people we did and some people we didn't and that I and I left that cue up to Scott as to who he wanted to tell and who he didn't want to tell but he would always finish any discussion or any update with a joke. And how did you tell the kids? The kids is a tricky one because they were only one and three. We didn't tell them. We wanted them to remain as, I guess, normal or naive as possible. We wanted them to live their life and enjoy time with Scott for as long as he could without them constantly worrying is this going to be the day that daddy dies or questioning every single illness or every single treatment. Um, so what we did tell them was that daddy has brains, uh, bugs in his brain, sorry. <laughs> um, and then he needed some treatment um, to help him and to try and get rid of the bugs. So they saw everything. They saw his radiation um, and, and they saw him all the way through his chemo and they understood, but they never knew the full extent of it until the last moment, I guess. And you kind of almost get naive of, uh, sorry, you almost get jealous of kids' naivety in situations like that. And you just love to be that oblivious, but it must just be such a natural instinct for parents. I mean, I was very much an adult when my mum was diagnosed and I know that my parents kept things from us um, because that's what parents do. They they want to protect their kids and not have them be exposed to it, even though you guys and they did as well had to bear the full brunt of what the doctors tell you because the doctors can't sugarcoat it for you and you've just got to take it all on 
it's yeah it's a lot yeah what did his treatment look like so he had radiation and chemo i remember he um uh was that before or after did he have treatment leading up to his surgery no he had surgery first and then once they had the full results he had um six weeks of intense um radiotherapy in geelong um and i feel like that was when he was at his worst like that really took a massive toll on him it exhausted him um and looking back at photos now i can see how sick he really was but how much he pushed through it and then he did 12 months of oral chemotherapy which meant he could do it at home um which he almost managed the full 12 months. I think he stopped at 10 or 11 months just because he built up this anxiety to taking pills. So at the beginning he was okay, but there was a lot. There was a lot of pills and they were big pills. And Scott doesn't even like taking Panadol. So um, he really struggled with it and to the point where we would try different drinks or towards the end. And I had to get them out on the table and then I'd have to cover them with like a serviette or something and he couldn't look and then I'd be like, right, okay, let's go. And I'd pass him one and then he'd have a sip and then he'd have to do like a walk around the block and then come back to have like seven more. So it, it, would, it would drag out for ages and we were just gratefully only had to do it five days of the month. Um, yeah. He, um, he really struggled with it, but he worked the whole way <laughs> through it. And I think that was more of a control thing and a distraction for him. Um, and only every now and then he would get really sick from it. Yeah, no, I remember him coming back to work and uh, he was Scott. He, was, there was, he wasn't different in his personality. He was, he was still Scott. Um, so he's gone through his treatment. Um, did, were you getting good results after that? Yeah, we got really good results. After the chemo had finished, we'd done a few more scans and it seemed to be really stable. Um, so we were able to think, oh, holy shit, maybe we're going to be, you know, the 2%, you know, rather than the majority that, that don't make it past the 18-month mark um, for brain cancer. So it was amazing. And we had really good oncologists down in Geelong that were like, why can't you be that? And so Scott really took that on board. He's like, oh, well, I am going to be that then. I'm going to be here longer than 18 months and I'm going to, you know, if I can make it 10 years and nothing happens but in the brain cancer world, that's sort of seen as, geez, you've really, really, really done well. In a way, you've kind of, you've kind of beaten it. It will always come back. But if you can make it to 10 years, then that's amazing. And that's what his goal was. Can you talk to us, talk us about um, the book he wrote? Yeah, I'm so, I'm so proud of him for this. So he wrote this book called um, My Daddy's Important New Job and it's for Henry and Sadie and it talks about um, that he had to go to do a new important job um, and it's around bringing the sun up in the morning or, you know, bringing the moon out or um, creating the rain so the flowers can grow it's a whole heap of different scenarios that that kids of Henry and Sadie's age can actually understand and see. Um, it doesn't mention any heaven or anything like that, um, 
because we'd never really spoken to the kids about heaven. Um, we just hadn't. So he wanted something that was something that they could see every single day in any moment. And they still talk about it. They read it all the time. They see certain things. Like we were driving yesterday past the bay um, and it was so, like, clear and beautiful. And Sadie piped up in the background going, geez, Dad's done a really good job today. And I was like, <laughs> exactly. Like, he amazing. absolutely has. And yeah, so it's such a beautiful book. And, and he wrote that in the first couple of days after his seizure. Um, and I think it was a really good outlet for him through his diagnosis and through his treatment because it gave him a purpose that was outside of what was happening. And he he went and got the designs done and got it all um, crowdfunded and all of the proceeds from the books went to different organisations. Um, so at the beginning, people were able to purchase a book and then highlight which um, charity they wanted the funding to go to from their book. So we had so many different foundations that we were providing money to, which is amazing. Um, but also he raised over $25,000 for brain cancer awareness as well. So he he was so proud and we are all so proud still. So, um, yeah, amazing job. I've got a copy of the book and besides bawling my eyes out when I read it, um, it was just so, so <laughs> beautiful to read. And I know it... Um, a friend of ours who's an occupational therapist came across it and was like, this is, this is amazing. And, you know, kids and parents need to, need to have this because um, no one talks about this kind of stuff really. And definitely no one really frames it. No one frames it for for children in a, in a digestible form that, that makes sense to them. So it really was an amazing thing that, that Scott put together. Yeah. It's his um, most beautiful lasting legacy. I think, We've got books that have gone all over the world that are in most school libraries um, and I'm working with News Corp at the moment to do another print run for it. So um, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last year, or leading up to last year, I guess, things were things were going well and life was, was relatively normal. When did things take a turn? It's really hard to pinpoint. Um, <clears throat> so Scott had a few ups and downs um, over the last year 18 months even so um we kind of lived our lives in three month blocks because that's when we would always have a scan so we would be like really good and then we'd get a bit low before the scan and then the scan would come back and then we'd be like oh my god okay we've got another three months that we need to get through let's push as much as we can and so we were doing so many things which was awesome and then in february last year he got a result that wasn't great and so he had to um, go back in for another surgery um, because it had grown back again. Um, so he had that removed, but he, didn't, he, he did start oral chemo again after that, um, but his result, it wasn't working for him this time. So then they had to move to a different type of um, I don't think it was chemotherapy. It was something around blocking growth to the tumour, so basically starving that bit of the brain. And so then we had more results come through and that wasn't working either. So he'd actually had an increase, a significant increase in his original tumour area, but also it had spread to the other side of his brain. 
So we decided that we needed to stop all treatment and he was given six to 12 months to live, um, which was really hard because he was still himself. He was still amazing. Um, We were still doing all this great stuff with the kids and we were starting to come out of lockdown and, you know, we had plans. We had so many plans. Um, And it wasn't until it was around September last year that I started to notice a few things um, and I honestly had put it down to he was, he was depressed. Like I thought he's changed in the way that he responds to me, in, in the way he responds to the kids, him forgetting the fact that he had booked in a podcast with you for like two times and forgotten that. I think back now I'm like, oh, my God, he would never, ever have forgotten something like that. Um so we booked a trip to Mildura. I thought, okay, we need to we need to get out of the house. We need to go away. We need to find some warmth or something, something exciting. So we went away, and um, it was then where I really, really noticed that he wasn't himself. And we went away with our best mates, and and Scott's best mate Jamie had had said to me, "What's going on? What's happening with him?" Because that's not Scott. And I was like, I know. He, he would sit in by himself inside while we we're all outside playing with the kids or it was, you know, a really hot day and he would be in tracksuit pants and a hoodie. And then the next day when it's cold, he's in shorts and a T-shirt. Like he just, he had no initiation to do anything, even to shower, even to eat um, or even to talk, which, you know, you know, Scott, he was, you couldn't shut him up. No. <laughs> so... Yeah, so we went on, just, I remember we, we were like, all right, we'll just get out and we'll go on that, um, on the boat, the steamboat in Mildura. And he just sat there the whole time and didn't talk at all. And so we got off the boat and I said to them, I'm taking him to emergency in Mildura. Yeah, and so I took him in there. They wouldn't let me go in originally because it was COVID, so you weren't allowed to go in. And I said, I am coming in because he cannot understand what is happening right now. Did he um, go with you willingly? Like, did he understand where you were taking him? Yeah, he was. He didn't put up a fight because he didn't get it. He didn't understand what was happening. He would normally, if I said go and see the doctor or, you know, whatever, he'd be like, no, I'm fine. Like, you're being silly. He just stood there and just followed me around like like he was not there. And so they ran some tests. They had said that he had a really significant um, mass on his brain, both sides of his brain. And then they said, we're going to fly him to Melbourne. So he had to go from Mildura to Melbourne with me, with the kids there, with my friends. Um, So mum came up and we all waited for him to go and then we were all leaving the next day because it's, you know, a seven-hour drive. <laughs> we didn't want to drive at night time. So we left the next morning and I remember speaking to his oncologist um, that day or the day before when he was, I rang her and said, he's in hospital, this is what's happening, can you try and get the scans? And so she got the scans and she said, yes, it's, there's nothing more that we can do and that, we need to get back as soon as we can. 
because we don't have much time. And I said to her, well, what's, what do you mean much time? Like you said six to 12 months, you know, or, and we're six months into that. Like, are you saying months? And she, and she said, no, like weeks, if you're lucky. And I was like, okay, all right, we need to, we need to go and we need to work out how the hell we're going to tell the kids that part because they knew he was sick but they didn't know that he wouldn't be around. Um, so we went to, we went home. I drove straight to the Alfred because on my way back, because he wasn't, this is the whole really weird thing. He wasn't physically unwell. He couldn't remember having conversations. He couldn't understand what they were saying, even though if you're talking to him, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, no worries. I've had this done and I've had this done. Like it was really bizarre. And so they said that they were releasing him. And I was like, what do you mean you're releasing him? You can't release him. He's not himself. But because they were so slammed with COVID, they didn't have a choice. (laughs) So I had to collect him not knowing what the plan was and take him back home. And it wasn't. So it was the longest weekend of my life, I think, because I was just staring at him going, I don't know what. I don't know what's going to happen here. Like he could have another seizure or, or he could just, you know, die. I rang his oncologist and they got him in on the Monday and did more tests. Um, They wanted to do some fresh MRIs on the same MRI machine that he'd always used. And then they confirmed that, yeah, he, there's nothing that they could do and that life was going to get really hard for the next couple of weeks because he would just slowly um, fade away. So he wasn't eating. He wasn't talking. Um, he would have his good moments, but then he'd get really confused. Um, especially at nighttime, he kind of had, um, sundowners, like, you know, when people who have Alzheimer's just kind of lose their minds at nighttime, he would do the same thing. So I really had to protect the kids from that because, they wouldn't understand. They, he would do really weird things like going and lighting a stove for no reason or become really agitated um, and would spend a lot of time just sitting quietly and not interacting. So um, we were able to, to bring him home. Um, must have been a three days after he'd been in Geelong, got all the palliative care team set up thinking we would be, you know, in this for maybe a couple of weeks, a month if we're lucky. So everything was set up and then I had to tell the kids. And I think, oh, that was the hardest thing we've ever had to do. They were devastated. I just, I know that Scott and I had talked about what we would say but we always thought that we would say it together and not having him have the ability to do that left me to do it by myself. And that, well, not by myself, my mum and my stepdad were there, but it was really tough. And I remember saying to them that daddy's bugs in his brain are back and that's why he'd been so sick and that, um, and that he was going to die. And um, that he was going to die really soon. So 
I remember everyone saying, you've got to be brutal and blunt with them because they won't understand. That's what the psychologists and everyone was telling me <laughs> while I was talking to them about the conversation that I had to have, which in a way is good. You know, they, they did understand, but God, I think it was the hardest thing I've ever had to say. I would just devastate it, as you can imagine. Yeah. And when you and Scott had spoken about having this conversation with the kids, did he want to be the one to, to tell them? Yeah. He did. Yeah. So um, he didn't get that chance, but he kind of did through his, through his book. And, and he did, we had probably had a week, not even a week, maybe five days after that conversation um, with them there. So they got to spend some time that he didn't understand. I, I would say to him, you remember what the doctors have said? And he's like, yeah. I know. I'm like, well, do you want to talk about it? And he he would be like, talk about what? <laughs> so we had kind of already lost him at that point. And I remember having a conversation with his family the day that he died saying, he's not there anymore. Like, that's not Scott. And for him to to suffer and and for us to lose him and him, you know, deteriorate in front of our eyes is not something that he would have wanted. Uh, I remember him saying that <laughs> when he first got diagnosed, he said, I don't want to be someone that drags it out. I don't want people to say, oh, it's a good thing. He's not in pain anymore. He goes, I want to go quickly and I want people to be devastated. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you got your wish, mate. But um we had this amazing family dinner, just me and the kids and Scott. Um, must have been two days before he died and he was so good. He was so good. We had tacos and he actually ate at the table and the kids read him bedtime stories and and then he took them to bed and sang them. He always sang them, You Are My Sunshine. So he sang them that song and I was just like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And I recorded the whole thing. I just took so many videos and photos oh, of it. You? Just oh. thinking, that's so lucky that we got, you know, that one really good night before it blew up. Yeah. I don't think, because um, I don't talk about the last days of my mum very often or ever, but um, it was similar in that mum's not there anymore. And it's I just once you lose that personality, they're, they're I don't know how to say it not like properly, but yeah, and they're gone, and you you don't want them. They yeah, it it once their personality's gone, they're gone, and we, we definitely we definitely yeah. saw that in mum, and watching them deteriorate is the, the worst form of torture that I can imagine. Like, you know, the closest person to you, and you you watch them not be them anymore. And I thought similar. I'm like, my mum would hate this. Like, she would just absolutely yeah. hate being seen like this. She didn't want. She definitely didn't want visitors when she – she didn't even really want visitors when she was herself because she just didn't like people seeing her in hospital. And she's like, when I'm out and I'm, you know, when I'm out and i got my hair done and whatever, then people can see me. I don't need people seeing me like this. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you don't want people to remember you that way. No, exactly. Was there an option for Scott to um, pass away in the hospital or did he want to come home? No, he wanted to come home. Yeah, we'd always discuss that, that he – he needed to be at home and I think COVID really 
push that for us because if he was in the hospital, we couldn't see him. So on the day that he did die, um, the kids had been staying with his parents at an Airbnb just up the road. And so they would bring them down every morning to say good morning and see him while he was good in the morning before they went to school. And um, they'd come in that morning and had, you know, a laugh and a joke about something. Um, And then Scott got sick um, and he vomited and, and poor H was just like, couldn't handle it. And um, I said, look, he's fine. Look, he's all, he's all good now. Um, it must have been the mango smoothie or something that he was trying to drink. Um, and so they all gave kisses and hugs and everything like that. And then, um, and then the kids went off to school and that was their last time that they saw their dad um, because he then had a huge seizure when it was just me here with him. I'd sent everyone home because he was going to have a sleep and, and I had to call the ambulance and, and the palliative care team and, and they had said, do you want us to take him into hospital? But if you take him into hospital, you won't see him again until he's ready to come home and, and he won't be coming home. So we kept him home even after he'd had his seizure. So He spoke to me a little bit about... Um Oh, just Scott being Scott, helping everyone, even when he was the one who needed help. But um, both of his parents um, are alive, which is obviously awful seeing your adult son go through what he what he did. And he spent a lot of time yeah. sort of coaching them through it. Um, how did he help them cope? I think Scott always knows how to how to explain what is happening or what was happening um, depending on who he was talking to. So with his parents, he would tell them enough so that they knew the seriousness of it, but he never dwelled on it Um, because I think, yes, it was a way of protecting them and coaching them through it, but it also made it easier on him because he just didn't have the space to worry about them worrying. And that's the type of person Scott was he would talk to them about the options that were that we had in front of us or the all the timelines but it was always 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 in a positive manner um so i think that was his way of protecting them they um they have already lost one son when he was born matthew so his parents jen and vince um you know know enough heartbreak already to have this happen um it's awful for them and seeing seeing them go through that was just and having to tell them that he only had a couple of days or a week um it was just just as hard as telling the kids to be honest like um but yeah I think now that protection um that Scott did and that coaching has been amazing in terms of we know what he would want us to do and ha- and want us to react in a certain way but also made it super hard to believe that it's actually happened because um, he was always so good and so positive. I went to Scott's memorial, which was absolutely beautiful, very much in Scott's style, which I'm sure was deliberate. Um, <laughs> 
and he wrote his yep. he wrote his own eulogy, which was read by his cousin. Is that or his one of his yeah, best his friends? Cousin, yeah, his Jamie. cousin. Yeah, and his it, cousin. It was amazing. Um, did he always want that that control or his the the option <laughs> for his for his voice to be heard, even at his own funeral? Yeah. Absolutely. He actually wrote that eulogy um, two days before his very first surgery. He sat down on the couch and read it to me and I was like, this is horrific. (laughs) Um, And then he would just update it um, every now and then as he went and he'd picked out um, particular pictures that he wanted and he had picked out the songs that he had wanted. he basically planned the whole thing. I knew exactly what he wanted and how he wanted to be sent off, which made it um, easier to to organise because he had done it all already. Like always the always the one that's in control, always the one thinking of others. And I remember him saying, "If it's my last party, let's make it a big one." So I think we achieved that. It was a really beautiful day. We cannot thank Jess enough for joining us in what was a really difficult episode to record and story to share. We have no doubt this was hard to listen to. However, Scott and Jess's heartbreaking story is why the Aftershock exists and shares the importance of why we need to eradicate this insidious disease. Until next time, I'm Susie Neat, and this has been the Aftershock Podcast.